Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lisa, for doing our children's message today. I feel like those visuals are great for us as adults, too, so thank you both. Young Martin Luther brought great disappointment to his father Hans when, prompted by the lightning storm, he left law school in order to become a monk. Hans ran a successful mining business, and he was angered that Martin would trash a successful career as a lawyer in favor of the humble life of a monk. As a monk, Luther began studying to become a priest. And when Luther celebrated his first Mass as an ordained priest, his father Hans invited his fellow business associates to take in the occasion. Luther, as an impeccable student, went through the liturgy flawlessly until he came to that critical moment at the Lord's Supper where the priest would speak the words of consecration and the bread and the wine would be miraculously changed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. And at that moment, Luther opened his mouth to say the words, but nothing came out. He stood there frozen, trembling, sweating, unable to say anything. Another priest stepped in to say the words of consecration so the Mass could continue. Hans Luther was incensed with his son's public failure at the Mass. But Luther explained to his irate father, how do I, a sinful man as I am, handle such holy things as the real physical body and blood of Jesus Christ? See, Luther was overwhelmed with what the Roman Catholics believe about the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholics believed and still believe to this day that when the priest speaks words of consecration over the elements, that the elements are miraculously transformed into the real physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And Luther realized that in that moment, and he's saying, how do I, as a sinful man, handle the real blood and the real body of Jesus? This is called transubstantiation. For the Roman Catholics, they believe at the Lord's Supper that when the priest speaks the words, the physical properties of the wine and the bread remain the same. Still looks like wine, still looks like bread, still tastes like wine, still tastes like bread. But they believe that the substance, hence transubstantiation, the substance of the elements is transformed into the very physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is the Roman Catholic position on the Lord's Supper, transubstantiation. Now, all the ex-Catholics in the room are going to appreciate this story. 
Morgan grew up Catholic, and so sometimes while we were dating, I would visit her church. And it was one of the first times that I went to church with Morgan. This is one of the first times I've, maybe the first time ever that I've been in a Roman Catholic mass. And she told me, we don't drink the cup because we don't want to drink out of the same cup that everybody drinks out of. And I'm like, yes, all right, I'm on the same page there. So he passed that by. We go to the priest. He hands me the host and he says, the body of Christ. And I said, thank you. <laughs> and we're returning to our seat and Morgan is elbow, elbowing me. She's like, you don't say thank you, you say amen. You know? <laughs> you're, they're they're going to know you're not one of us. You know, <laughs> Body of Christ, thank you. So that was my, one of my first experiences with Roman Catholic Eucharist. Three years after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, Luther would come to reject the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. And he would set out to find what he himself believed to be happening in the Lord's Supper. See, the question was, what is the meaning of the word is? Look at Mark 14, verse 22. Jesus says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. And then two verses later in 24, and Jesus said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. What's the meaning of the word is? He set out to find what the meaning of the word is, is. (laughs) What's the meaning of the word is? And Luther would land in a spot where he said, that Christ was present and he was present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. And this view has become known as the real presence view and it remains the view of Lutherans today. And I double-checked this because I talked with our very own Bob Hartline who grew up Lutheran. He said, yep, real presence. And I talked with my friend Andrew Sir, who's the associate pastor of Christ Church Mequon, Lutheran Church. I said, real presence? Yep, real presence. So that was Luther's view, and that remains the Lutheran view of this day, that Christ's physical presence is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Now, don't ask me to explain what those three words mean, but Luther is linking Christ's presence with the elements. So Luther is agreeing with the Catholics that, yes, there is a physical presence of Christ in this meal, but Luther is rejecting that the elements somehow miraculously are transformed in the very body and blood of Jesus. He's like, no, no to the transubstantiation part, but yes to Christ's physical presence in these elements. Well, if Luther sought out to improve upon the Catholic view, then a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, who was another reformer, pulled the whole thing up by its roots and went to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. In 1529, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli went into Marburg Castle in Hesse, Germany to debate the real presence view of Luther and Ulrich Zwingli's emerging view about the Lord's Supper. Now, battle lines had already fiercely been drawn between Luther and his adherents and Zwingli and his adherents, so much so that the Zwinglians accused Luther and his followers of being cannibals who worshipped a baked God, right? Because they say the physical presence of Christ is in these elements. So they're cannibals. They're eating Jesus. 
They're eating a baked God. And sadly, if you look deeper into the history of the Reformation, there is a dark side, and things like this debate over the Lord's Supper ended up in bloodshed, in death, in excommunication, and it ought to be condemned. And while I'm on the subject of fighting over doctrinal positions, let me just say for our sake that the purpose of this series was never to draw exclusionary boundaries for us. The purpose of this series is to not only just name the official positions of Grace 242, it was to appreciate the theological heritage of which we are a part, and also, hopefully, in the course of things, help us all appreciate what the official belief of Grace 242 is. But, let me say, you do not need to agree with every little minutia of Reformed theology to be welcome here. You are welcome here. The people in your sphere of influence whom you invite to church are welcome here. You may disagree, and you are welcome here. I've had discussions with some of you, and you say, Bill, I don't agree with that. That's okay. You are welcome here. If you're curious about Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, and if you want to be obedient to Jesus, you are welcome here. If this series causes you to ask theological questions, mission accomplished. If this series causes you to look at the Bible and say, what do I really believe about this? Mission accomplished. If this series prompts discussions with you and your children, what was Bill talking about? Mission accomplished. That's the purpose of this series, not to draw exclusionary boundaries. You are welcome here. Clear? Thank you. Back to Zwingli. The question is, what is the meaning of the word is? When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood in Mark 14, 22 and 24. And Zwingli took the position that the word is must mean signifies. So Zwingli's interpreting Mark 14, 22 and 24. He's saying, Jesus must mean, take it for this signifies my body. This signifies my blood. In other words, all these are, are symbols, representations of my body and my blood. Therefore, when we come to this table... This is a remembrance. I mean, you see it even right, right on here. Do this in remembrance of me. And Zwingli is emphasizing that word remembrance in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul quotes Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. So Zwingli is saying, when we come to this table, this is symbolic, it's remembrance, it is memorial, and it is nothing more than that. There is no presence of Jesus here. These are symbols and it's a remembrance and that's it. Zwingli's view can be called the memorial view, which has become largely the view of many Baptist churches in our day and age. That we are remembering Jesus, but that's all we're doing here. There's nothing more than remembrance and symbolism in this meal. So let me just map these positions for you for a second. On the one extreme, you have the Roman Catholic position that says that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. And Luther takes one step away from that view and says, no to actual becoming the body and blood of Jesus, but there is a physical presence of Jesus here in this meal. He wants to keep the presence of Jesus, but he rejects the transubstantiation part. And then Zwingli looks at those two guys and he's like, I want nothing to do with that. With that, comes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and says, no, no, no. There is no presence of Christ in this. All this is is a remembrance, symbolic, a memorial. We're only remembering. There's nothing spiritual going on here. So where do we land <laughs> as Presbyterians? 
I'm hesitant to map us on here. So there is a space that was meant to communicate the, the differences in the position. We've mentioned him before, but a French theologian and pastor by the name of John Calvin was about 25 years younger than Luther. Their lives overlapped, although they never met one another. And he looked at the Roman Catholic view and Luther and said, yes, there is some sort of presence of Christ in this meal. And he looked at Zwingli and said, this is more than just symbolism, Zwingli. This is more than just memorial. This is more than just remembrance. There is presence of Christ in this meal. But he said, what if the presence of Christ is not present in the elements? Rather, what if the presence of Christ is spiritual in the hearts of those who come to this table? And so that is Calvin's view that we often call uh, spiritual presence. Some people even say, this is a crazy word to use, some people even say mystical presence. But our theological heritage says that when you come to this meal, Christ is present, however, he is spiritually present in the hearts of the believers who come here. We're not worried about how his presence fits into the elements because we don't think that way. We think about how is he spiritually present in the hearts of the believers who come to this table. Again, the question is what the meaning of the word is is. What does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body, this is my blood? And what Calvin is thinking about as he's mulling over what the meaning of the word is is, is, where is the body of Jesus? (laughs) Calvin is asking the question as he's pondering the meaning of the word is, where is Jesus' physical human body right now? That's what Calvin's wondering As we come to this table and as we hear Jesus say, this is my body, where is the physical body of Jesus right now? And let me give you a little story. We have to review the story of Jesus revealed. Now I say Jesus revealed because he's eternal. He's eternally begotten. He's always been. But we didn't know him as Jesus until he was revealed to us as baby Jesus born into Joseph's line as an infant boy, human infant boy, with all of the physical properties that come with being a human boy. And this is the mystery of the incarnation, that somehow baby Jesus is 100% God, but at the same time, he's 100% real human boy. That's why we call him the 200% person. 100% God, 100% man, in the same person at the same time in this thing called the hypostatic union. We don't know how that works. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And this boy does what boys do. He grows up and becomes a man. And he calls the disciples to himself, other men, and says, live life with me. This human man, Jesus, says, I want to pour my life, my human life into you. I want to reproduce my life in you guys. He starts his ministry at around age 30 and goes around traveling, walking roads with his disciples, using his human legs, using his human hands to touch and heal people, using his human mouth to preach and to teach, using his human intellect to reason and connect with people. And because of his claims to divinity as a mere man, as a mere mortal, 
It lands him on a Roman execution device. And guess what? When you nail a real human body to a cross, it dies. And that's what happened to Jesus' body. He dies. Three days later, the Father and the Holy Spirit do a miracle raising Jesus from the dead. And now he has his resurrected body. And we get a glimpse into what the resurrected body looks like. And what's so beautiful about this glimpse into the resurrected body is that Jesus is more human in his resurrected body than any of us in this room. Because God's design for humanity does not include sin and death. We brought that into humanity. So the resurrected body is more human than any of us in this room because death was not part of that design of God's. You ever think about that? that our resurrected body is more human than we are right now. Because it's more, it's, it's God's original design. So Jesus receives his resurrected body, rises from the dead, appears to his followers. And he's doing all sorts of cool resurrected stuff that resurrected bodies do, like walk through walls and disappear from one place and reappear in another place. I hope that's true of us too when we have our resurrected bodies. Just pop in on somebody, hey! Yeah! <laughs> right? I don't know why. I don't know why it wouldn't be. He's a truly human, so I don't know why we wouldn't have the same physical human body properties, the resurrected body that Jesus has. Now I'm just having, I'm geeking out, thinking about what the resurrected body's going to look like. So, I'm out of here, folks. Pop, you're gone, you know. So, yeah. Walk through a wall. Jesus is like, why do we even construct these things in the new heavens and the new earth? People can just walk right through them. Anyway, He appears to his followers and then he ascends into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of the Father where he reigns over the cosmos at this very moment. Back to Calvin. Where is the physical body of Jesus? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father reigning over the cosmos as we speak. That's where he is. This is how Philippians 2 sums this whole thing up. Beautiful hymn of the early church. Who, meaning Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Here's the incarnation now. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Since he died for the sins of the world, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Where is he right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he has the name that is above all names. He's reigning over the cosmos to the glory of God the Father. That's where the physical embodied human Jesus is. We're a part of a denomination that's really simple to say, a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians. We just, we, Presbyterians just love to make it complicated. Like, hey, this is simple. Let's complicate that. Just makes no sense to me. Anyway, so, we, so what we do is we abbreviate it with ECO. Okay? Evangelical covenant order, ECO. So eco, the ECO essential tenets are about a five-page beautiful document of the essentials of what we believe. 
Every one of you should take some time to read those five pages. That's all it is. That's the only thing we didn't complicate. Praise the Lord. Five pages. What are the essentials of what we believe? All pastors agree to these essential tenets. All elders agree to these essential tenets. Here's a quote from Eco's essential tenets. The risen Jesus, who was sent from the Father, has now ascended to the Father in his resurrected body and remains truly human. He is bodily present at the right hand of the Father. When we are promised that one day we will see him face to face, we acknowledge that it is the face of Jesus of Nazareth we will someday see. The one who for us and for our salvation was born of Mary, died at Calvary, and walked with disciples to Emmaus is the same Jesus Christ who is now ascended and who will one day return visibly in the body to judge the living and the dead. Where is the physical embodied Jesus? He's reigning at the right hand of the Father right now. That's what Calvin's thinking about when he's asking, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? He's imagining Jesus reigning at the right hand of the Father right now. And so Calvin says, when we come to this table, Jesus is spiritually present in the hearts of believers. How can Jesus be physically present in the elements when he has a real human body and he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father? If he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, then he's not present in the physical elements. He is spiritually present in the hearts of those who come to this table. That's how Calvin is arriving at his spiritual presence position. Earlier this week, I'm sitting at a table. Kyle Komarowski, Ben Cole, Brian, and Megan DeMaster. Somehow we get talking about math. I think it was my fault. Because Kyle's doing student teaching right now in secondary math classroom, and, you know, Brian does math every day as an engineer and went to MSOE, and so he knows math. And so somehow we get talking about math, and like taking math in, in high school and what we took, and then those of guys that took math in college. And now all of a sudden we end up in a place where Brian and Kyle are trying to explain to me binary, uh, which I know is one and zero, but, uh, you know, Daniel's tried to explain it to me before too, but other than one and zero, one is on, zero's off, I know that, right? And then now they're trying to explain base eight, base two, base 10, and literally five words would get out of their mouth and I would just bury my head in my hands and go, <laughs> like, it just, it doesn't, like it just doesn't work. Bill Verveldi's brain just does not work on these things. It gets lost immediately. I, tr I mean, I really try, you know. I mean, Brian was talking about binary, and it's like, oh, it's about the place value. And once you're this far in, you know, then that means that already just, ah, it's gone. It's gone. I'm hopeless. I am hopeless. I took algebra as a freshman, geometry as a sophomore, and trigonometry as a junior. And then I was done. No more math for Bill Verveldi. Praise the Lord. And I only passed because our teacher let us use our notes on the test. So, okay, all right, if I just know how to do this, I just change the numbers over here, and then I got it. So, C's, yay! So, where am I going? I'm getting off. So, I'm at this table, and I'm going, my brain just, oh. And I think if you're, so why I'm saying this is, some of you might be where I was on Tuesday night. So far. You're like, what? I just, ugh. All this theology and metaphysics and ah, like Bill, my brain doesn't work this way. Like Bill, you think about these things. Like I don't, I don't use this in my daily job. You lost me like 20 minutes ago. Well, if that's you, if you're, if you're me with math, if, if I've totally lost you right now, like there's an opportunity right here to, to get something out of this, okay? That's what I'm telling you. Like there is an opportunity to get something out of this. So if, you're, if you've fallen off the bus, I'm stopping it 
and I'm running back to get you and pulling you back on, all right? Because what I want to do is I just want to take the rest of this time to coach us on some of the new realities that we can be thinking about when we come to this table every month. I mean, there's already things we should be thinking about, but I want to give us even more. I want to coach us on even more things that we can be thinking about. I got coached this week. I have new things that I get to think about when I come to this table, and I want to share those with all you. Quick opportunity to plug this too. I like to coach our kids when they're starting communion. I like to coach them on what to think about when they come to the table. So if you have a child that's showing interest in communion, there is something we've developed called CPR, Communion Preparation Resource, and the link to this is always in the midweek email, or I can get you this. If you want this, get this. I can get this to you. Walks you through the steps of getting your child into our partaking community. We would love for your child to be part of that partaking community, but we want to go through some of these things first, so please be having a dialogue with your children about communion, and then use this resource to get your children into the partaking community here at Grace. So let me coach us on what we should be thinking about when we come to this table or more things that we can be appreciating when we come to this table. Number one is that when we come to this table, Jesus is lifting us to himself. Now, this one's new for me. I learned this this week because I don't know about you, but I always kind of conceive this meal, especially if you emphasize the remembrance part. I always almost imagined us kind of dragging what Jesus did out of the past into the present or dragging Jesus kind of out of heaven to come down to us. It was like I almost imagined us bringing him from where he is down to us into our space so that we could celebrate him. And that's not what we're doing. It's actually a reversal of that. It's not that we are bringing Jesus down to us in this moment. It's that he is actually lifting us up into his presence. And it's almost a preview of the new heavens and the new earth when we will get to meet him face to face. He is lifting us to himself so that we can commune with him. We don't commune with him by bringing him down from heaven to us. He communes with us by lifting us to himself. That's a new way to think about this. There's a band called Atalus, and they have a song called When I'm Standing in Your Presence, and it's this beautiful picture of what it will be like to sit down at a table with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. So I want to play a few bars for you. Pay attention to these lyrics and just imagine what this is going to be like someday. Let's play that. When I break the bread of heaven for the first time When I'm seated at that long-awaiting feast When I drink with men and angels from the new vine And I see of all who gathered I'm the least I will lift my cup to you, O Christ my King And I will praise you for the can you imagine being seated at that feast and when you lift your cup up, he's really there. When you break bread, you see him. And you're remembering what he did for us and he's actually there with you. The first century Nazarene is at that table. When he lifts us to commune with him. It is a foretaste of getting to actually see him face to face at that feast in the new heavens and the new earth someday. That's what he's doing when we come to communion. We don't bring him down to us. He is lifting us up to be with him.
in the new heavens and new earth. He lifts us, and he lifts us not only to commune with us, but while he lifts us to commune with us, he lifts us to commune with us to nourish us. This one's really easy, all right? Follow this. Really easy to wrap your mind around. We eat food for energy and nourishment, right? We eat food. Yes, it's tasty, yeah. We eat food for nourish, nourishment and energy, right? In the same way, when we come to this table, we are eating spiritual food to nourish us spiritually in our walks with Christ. In the same way that physical food gives us physical nourishment, spiritual food gives us spiritual nourishment. He lifts us up to himself to commune with us so that he can nourish us. Dr. Laura Smith is a professor of theology at Calvin College, and she used to be in our presbytery, and I've met her personally, and uh, when the ordination candidates would stand up uh, for their examination on the floor as their final step toward ordination at presbytery meeting, we were all nervous because uh, Laura Smith was in the crowd, you know. So here's this theology professor that's just going to grill you, you know. <laughs> and thankfully for me, our presbyteries multiplied, and now Michigan is no longer part of our presbytery. So I never had her in the audience when I did my took the stand thing. But I've met her personally, and here's what Dr. Laura Smith writes about the communion meal: When we partake of the bread and the cup, we are lifted into God's presence transformed into Christ's likeness and equipped to represent him to the world. Christ is ascended in the body and through the sacrament draws all believers into union with him and thus into communion with the inner life of the Trinity. It is only because we have stood in God's presence through having been lifted into union with Christ that we are equipped to represent Christ to others. He lifts us to nourish us so that we are ready to go when we go out into the world to represent him to others. This is really beautiful. Guys, this is a, people, this is a break from the stress, from the burdens, from the hurts of this life that we get to, for a moment, stop all that. Be lifted into his presence. Get a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth and he can feed us and nourish us so that when he sends us back down again, we're equipped and ready to go and do his work in this world. It's a temporary stop of this crazy life so he can send us back out equipped, refreshed, ready to go. Back when Mike McCarthy was the coach of the Packers, about the year 2014, the injuries were just mounting year after year after year for the team. And at this point, it had kind of become a feature and not a bug. They needed to do something about it because every year they just faced insurmountable injury problems. And so Mike McCarthy consulted with a bunch of different staff members and he brought a nutritionist on staff and new physical you know, people and all this stuff. And, and one of the results of that consulting was that the team would stop mid-practice and eat a snack. And then they would finish practice out again. So they'd practice. They, they wouldn't eat very much before practice because you don't feel very good. And then they'd practice hard, stop, be nourished, refreshed, and then they'd finish out practice again. And I assume that that helped with injuries because you're, not, you're less likely to injure yourself when you're refreshed and ready to go instead of dogging it. Right? So I like to think of communion as that mid-practice nourishment. We stop our lives to be lifted to Christ so he can nourish us and then he sends us back out into the world to do his work. Furthermore, this is not our work. This is his work. And I can't do this on my own. I need him to do his work. I need his nourishment to do his work. This is not optional for the believer. This is a necessity. This is required 
gives a whole new meaning to First Philippians 4.13, right? Michael will tell you about this verse. I can do everything through him who gives me strength because he nourishes me at his table. He lifts us. He lifts us to nourish us. And he nourishes us not by changing into food for us, by changing us to be like him. He feeds us not by becoming food for us, but by transforming us into his image. That's how he nourishes us. We've mentioned it before, but Augustine of Hippo, who was converted in the Garden of Milan that day, he writes what he hears Jesus saying to him. So this is what Augustine hears Christ saying to Augustine. Jesus says to Augustine, I am the food of the mature. Grow then and you will eat me. You will not change me into yourself like bodily food. You will be changed into me. He lifts us to nourish us by conforming us to his image. This is what 1 John 3, 2 says. It gives us a picture of that conformity to Jesus made complete when we see him face to face someday. John says, dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And in that moment, the transformation into his image will be made complete. This is what we're doing when we come to this table. We're being lifted to commune with our Lord and Savior. He's nourishing us so that we can go back out into the world equipped and ready and empowered to do his work. And he nourishes us not by becoming food for us, but by transforming us into his glorious image. When you come to the table tonight, be thinking about these things. Let's do that now. Here's what Paul says about this meal. For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Get right with God when you come up here. And we're going to do that corporately by praying a prayer of confession together so that we can remind ourselves that this is God's meal. He just invites us to it. So we want to be in right standing with the host of this meal when we come to him. Let's do that corporately through this prayer of confession. Pray this. Don't just read it. Pray it. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you alone are good and holy. Purify our lives and make us obedient disciples who are not afraid. We do not ask you to keep us safe, but to keep us loyal so we may serve Jesus Christ, who, tempted in every way as we are, was faithful to you. Forgive us for neglecting to pursue and failing to live out the truth of your word. 
Forgive us for disordered priorities that shunt you to the margins of our lives. Forgive us for our pride and an inflated sense of self-regard. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to make peace with those against whom we have harbored grudges. Forgive us and cleanse us through the perfect life and atonement of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you prayed this prayer, then hear these assuring words from the prophet Micah. This is Micah 7, verses 18 to 19. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Amen.